Welcome to Co-Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. I love to write no-blocking code, right? Because that's when you actually reach uh, scalability. Hey, when Ricardo Terrell hit the concurrency limitations in a JVM application, he thought back to the Haskell he learned in university and decided to rewrite the whole thing. The immutability of the Haskell solution made the concurrency bottleneck non-existent. So it's no surprise that years later, his book on concurrency in .NET leans heavily on functional programming constructs and the functional features of F-sharp and C-sharp. Today, I talked to him about concurrency and functional programming and about F-sharp and how it compares to Haskell and Scala. We also chat about CPU architectures and best practices for writing distributed systems, a little bit of FRP for fun. Thanks to Manning, we have some free copies of the book to give away. Listen to the end of the podcast to hear about that. Ricardo Terrell is the author of Concurrency in .NET and a F-sharp and, and functional programming enthusiast, I believe. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. So I have I have your book here. Actually, I have an e-version of it. So I have a Kindle uh, in front of me, and I have the book on it. So let's start with a with an easy question: Why do we need concurrency? Um, can we just depend on computers getting faster? Well, so that's not anymore no, uh, uh, an option. We have a uh, we almost reached the speed of light in a in a, in a computer, the, the CPU. I mean, uh, you know, we have a computer that it used to be, you know faster and faster, and uh, when you write a program to make it just, you know, uh, process the computation faster, you just wait probably here to get, you know, a faster computer. However, this trend is over because uh, uh, Marshall um, mentioned that, you know, computer get faster every eight months, more or less, but this is not possible. We actually reach um, the physical uh, limit because you know, vendors try to make transistors smaller and smaller to have more transistors inside the chip so the computer can go faster. But these transistors get so smaller. I think now Intel um, is going to announce short, shortly at 14 uh, nanometer, which is like, I think, 500 times smaller than a blood cell. And um, if you think about it, when you're that small, the electron that passes to the transistor, they become so, so tiny that you have an effect called tunneling. They're so tiny, pretty much go through the transistor. So you, there is no, like, the classic switch on, switch off. The binary operation, that's kind of, uh, um, you cannot uh, apply the operation anymore. So, uh, forward count these limitations. So vendor decide to instead of, uh, um, transistor go smaller, smaller, provide computer with multiple CPU. So now instead of computer run faster, we can uh, achieve true parallelism. I mean, the computer can truly do multiple things at the same time, right? What what makes concurrency hard? Mainstream languages were designed without uh, concurrency in mind, right? It's all mm-hmm. procedural or sequential because really it just, you know, hand the payload of the work to the computer to process faster. And unfortunately, now we're facing different reality and these programming languages are still, you know, uh, utilized out there is, um, they are, uh, they're kind of, uh, I'm going to say, try to, um, adjust the direction. So they provide some sort of API or primitive to be able to run multiple things, uh, in parallel. But this primitive aim to, um, synchronize, you know, the, the computation because the main problem is that with these programming languages were designed with uh, uh, mutability in mind. And uh, mutability is the problem of writing correct deterministic parallel programming. Right? And so because programming languages, especially like an imperative programming language, it, 
it goes line by line and like this is happening sequentially and then also it's changing state so that that makes concurrency a challenge to introduce yeah that's correct so these programming languages were designed with a mutation in mind so whenever uh, we, we state right we, we, with the change of state. So mm-hmm. in parity language, we're able to process some computation and as you say, sequentially procedural, change the state. That's actually how imperative language were designed. And now we are facing this reality of uh, uh, write multiple thing, write code and write multiple thing in parallel. Well, it can happen that uh, multiple thread access the same uh, memory space at the same time. And uh, there are several issues with that because one of the most famous can be, you know, uh, race condition when mm-hmm. a thread changes the state, the state of uh, this memory uh, address, and the second thread access this memory, but the state change, and in the state that was not expected, so the program program can run, you know, in an unwanted behavior, and hopefully not going to crash, but it's also a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. I had two interviews with uh, Jim Blandy, uh, who wrote a book about Rust. And so Rust, in many ways, it's a tool designed to deal with concurrency. It's taking the approach that you find kind of in C or C++ with locks and kind of extending the compiler to have the compiler kind of warn and kind of prevent, I guess, prevent outright these sort of race conditions and deadlocks. Um, But I think your book is interesting because it's about it's about a totally different approach to concurrency. What's, what's the approach? So, uh, well, the book emphasizes, you know, the uh, functional paradigm. So it turned out that the functional uh, paradigm is a old idea um, and uh, kind of, you know, putting aside from uh, when, you know, um, my main programming language is just, you know, Java, C++ came along. Um, it was designed you know, with imperative paradigm in mind. Functional programming on the left-hand side, and everything that functional programming more for academia or this kind of, uh, of field. But now that functional programming actually fit quite well to write uh, concurrent programs because um, the functional tenets, such as immutability, uh, referential transparency, and so forth, really are um, great tools to write, you know, concurrent, um, correct concurrent program deterministic. Yeah, it's a great fit. So you, you had an, uh, an example in the book where you had to work on a system to, to scan medical images. Uh, I was wondering if you could share that. Sure. So that was back in Italy. Uh, that uh, I used to run a small um, consulting company. We did a lot of uh, program for the, the healthcare. And um, we... One of the systems we implemented was uh, for the radiology. We did, uh, um, you know, to do analyze and post-analyze images. But before even the post-analysis, these images had to be processed. And it was like a pilot um, uh, application in the beginning, but have a, you know, quite good success because at the time, really, there was no uh, many software uh, that was able to do what we're doing. And um, so we started with the radiology, and the payload, the work was, you know, decent, but it wasn't really um, overwhelming, the, the overall um, application. However, more and more, you know, um, images were sent to be processed over time. You know, the radiology gets extended, get more machine. So really, for like probably 10 images processed, I don't know, like in an hour, we're like probably like 100 per minute. Right mm. now, think about back in the day, there was not really computer run super fast. So to process an image, it takes a few minutes. And uh, when you have like 100 images to process in a few minutes, really, that was like a problem. So too long. So the solution we had was, okay, let's, you know, parallelize the work, distribute the work, and so forth. And that's when we start to face the problem that I mentioned earlier with the uh, Using technology that were not designed to write parallel program, we're facing issues such as you know race condition was the and uh, and when you try to face you know race condition, uh, on one side you have other problems such as deadlock when you have like you know the application stop working because thread waiting to each other to release the lock. The mm-hmm. So 
it was pretty, quite messy. And I really spent a lot, a lot of time to figure out a solution, but it was like, you're fixing one thing and something else broke, right? So at that point, I realized the best way sometimes, you know, sit back and probably just keep, you know, make the same mistake over and over. Probably the approach you're trying to do is not the correct one or the probably a better solution. Mm-hmm. And um, that's actually when everything started because I remember back in college, I did a semester using a functional language, Haskell. And uh, I was pretty much, I was very fascinated about the language and the paradigm. And even it was very hard for me to really master the language, but I knew that was definitely uh, a better solution, a good solution, because I mentioned uh, functional programming like Haskell as building immutability per default. And this tool really, um, it doesn't make you to a program to run faster, but prevent you to make mistakes, right? Mm. It's easier to write code that can be easily parallelized. It was uh, faster to build a new part of the program that was uh, leverage functional programming um, than write to try to correct or rearrange or fix bugs with the previous implementation. And so did you rewrite it in the same language? No, no, I wrote in um, the portion of the code was rewritten using Haskell. Oh, nice. Yeah, so, and uh, yeah, actually, uh, I the original implementation was uh, all in Java. So uh, I, I think if I go back, I'll do it differently, but I had to implement some sort of C++ layer to interrupt between Haskell or Java. And again, that was like many years ago. So, <laughs> but, but it worked. And actually, um, definitely we achieved the goal expected to, you know, be able to process many images in parallel and we're back in, uh, back in business. So now it's years later, you're writing a book about concurrency in .NET and, uh, like, the, the thing that I noticed about the book is it's, it seems to be secretly a book about functional programming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, so um, the book uh, spends a lot of time uh, with uh, F-sharp. Um, why, why is F-sharp uh, a good choice for uh, concurrent code? F-sharp is one of the newest functional programming languages, other that the commercial like Scala, for example, is a, another, uh, that really, uh, what I think really uh, they do, what is successful, is they cover the gap between pure lang- pure functional languages, such as Haskell, and imperative languages, such as Java, C++, and C Sharp. Because you, um, is a functional per default, however, allowed you to cheat and write, you know, in an imperative way. So, so it makes it easier also for any sort of engineer that comes from an imperative experience to embrace the language and slower is lower, um, also embrace the paradigm. And um, yeah, I did a lot of work in the past uh, in C sharp, and especially you know my bread and butter is uh, for many years have been distributed system and parallel processing, and uh, of course I had to use majority of the time imperative language like Java, C plus plus. And C, and C sharp. However, it is always to me toward the idea that functional was the right solution. And when Microsoft announced F sharp, you know, it was really a refreshing feeling for me to be able actually to interrupt between the languages. And because even the book, I try to uh, convey the message that you can do pretty much whenever you can, whenever you want in both C, uh, C sharp and F sharp and they interrupt quite well between the two languages. So some places better use one language rather than the other, and vice versa. But um, definitely F-sharp, the fact that this function first allowed you to, um, it prevented you to write incorrect code, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's probably a lot more C-sharp programmers out there than F-sharp programmers, so I can understand the coverage but do you have a personal preference? What what's the what, what do you pick up when you need to solve these problems? Well, when I had to do to the core and write uh, parallel computation, or I had to go to F sharp. And again, and all because uh, I'm lazy and I know that the right code that I run in parallel using a functional language allowed it to allow me to write code that is less buggy. So I'm faster, more productive, and you know, I to write less unit tests. It just fits better for the uh, parallel domain. However, as I said, like, F-sharp is a mutable per default. 
you can cheat, as I said, you have to de- tell the compiler what you want to do, that you want to be, um, you want to use something immutable, but it would be explicit. On the other side, C sharp is per default mutable, right? So it's a different mindset. Uh, is it, you know, it's a paradigm shift, but, uh, definitely it requires a little learning curve, but it pays definitely the, the, the benefit later on. Yeah, and certainly with parallel execution, like immutability is is something handy as a default. Yes, you think about when something cannot change. Well, it's safe to be shared between threads because now the thread cannot mutate it, or there is some sort of um, something called you know um, copy per value or defended copy, or like uh, uh, you mentioned Rust for instance earlier. Rust also has been designed like with a hybrid approach. That allowed you to use something mutable, but can you, the compiler warn you and really want to be sure that what you're doing is what you want to do it, like user foot, right? Well, be careful. And the same thing here, right? So immutability allowed you to be, um, create objects that are now, that are trade safe because it cannot mutate. However, like, you know, in the real world, we do have to mutate things. How do we, how do we overcome the fact that Values need to change. We need to get work done. Well, that's a that's a good question. So there are different kind of approaches. Like uh, for instance, um, there are parallel pattern you can use. Um, in, uh, for example, uh, the classic fork join or map reduce. Whenever you have some sort of computation that can be split among uh, different unit computation. So in that case, um, you can partition the work, but also each thread can create a copy that can only be accessed by this thread specifically. And when the computation is completed, you can merge together the result in, in your solution, right? And that's actually, it's very close also to the uh, functional programming style. When you have a big problem to solve, you try to break in, it, break in apart in smaller, smaller portion until it's very easy to tackle directly. And then you recompose them together, you glue them together for the final solution, right? So, same similar approach here with the, uh, the parallel code. You make new computation that are independent. You mutate. You can mutate the object, so it's okay because, anyways, it's only one thread can access that object, and then you can, you know, remerge. That's like the joint part, the joint part in a fork joint pattern, for example. And the global state will be more tricky. There are other operations that you can uh, um, you can apply, such as you know the comparison swap is a uh, uh, also something that I, I introduced in the book is a, a good approach where what you can do is that you can mutate or update an object, but a low level. So each thread that access the specific memory or the specific object is guaranteed they are going to access the latest one, the latest updated, right? Some sort of barrier to be sure that no thread is going to get an object that is in a wanted state. You had uh, an example in the book that I think it's an interesting concept. I don't want to gloss over it about, I think you called it hunt the thread unsafe. So this example about a chat application of some sort. Yeah, sure. So in a book, I sort of start this out of the story, right? But uh, uh, really what it uh, boiled down to the fact that there was this uh, application that was a sharing uh, state globally. And in the case of the chat, you know, is that when you have multiple users, they can join the chat to leave the chat and, you know, this room, this group and so forth. But this has some sort of, uh, um, some sort of location that maintain the state of the current active user, right? And the problem is that, um, the, the API or the technology that was used, it was uh, running a high contention, which means that uh, there was many thread accessing the the same the same state and there are two caveats here one with a lot of contention also the application run slower right and over mm-hmm. if you use like primitives just lock you have you can run in uh, uh, other cases such as you know the um, convey um, uh, lock and so forth when uh, for instance lock runs slower than the thread try to access the specific state 
And what does it mean to create this call of, of, uh, of tail or many thread that they're waiting, they're queue up, right? Waiting for other accesses. And this, the bigger become the tail, you can imagine, you know, the slower the application run. And, uh, that's also when contention, um, it kind of, uh, rise as a, as a, as a big problem. Let me make sure I follow. So you have a chat application and when people join, there's some sort of shared, like a list or something of the users who are active. And the problem is as things scale, like, okay, so you need to deal with concurrency. So you put locks around accessing this and then it becomes a bottleneck. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, that's correct. And, um, but the the, the thing that, uh, uh, I mentioned is that if you're not careful, it's very hard to understand offices work correctly because maybe sometimes a user leave the chat, but the collection is not up to date because, you know, you don't use the lock correctly. And uh, it's very hard to detect that kind of bugs, right? Because maybe work your machine by production that maybe the server is uh, under different kind of payload with many, many more requests, um, you know, that's when the bug can raise and you are not able to reproduce it, right? It's it's like non-deterministic. Like concurrency bugs are often like, who knows when they're going to happen. Oh, yeah, that's correct. That's correct. In fact, one of the, if I have like a, a superpower, I'd like to be able to produce this kind of deadlock detector, right? So you run the code, <laughs> but be able actually to say, You've wrote the code here, but actually when you put the lock, it's not correct. Oh, uh, well, it'll be great. But unfortunately, you know, there is no compiler or programming language that can tell you if you use the, this kind of primitive correctly. No, but I guess like, so uh, yeah, there's potentially two solutions, right? One is your solution of immutability and some, and the other solution is kind of rust where they say like, listen, you can only have one person is able to write at a time, or you can have multiple readers. And you can do the same thing in a, like Rust high level. I mean, Rust uh, provided this kind of primitive. Um, however, you know you can build this kind of tool in functional programming languages, just as Haskell, Sharp, and so forth. Makes sense. Back to the story, wherein what's the solution? You have this dictionary. Or something, and you need to lock around it, right? Um, so, the, the ultimately, the, so it was interesting actually the, the investigation to um, use uh, some tooling to figure out actually where uh, you know this contention uh, was raised, and uh, the problem actually is that who implemented the code did not read the documentation correctly because the collection they were using is said yes, it tried safe, but pretty much only in the read part, which uh. all collection are pretty much thread safe in the read, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so the problem is that when it was multiple write, there was the contention. Uh, and I think uh, overall the collection was behaving correctly, like it was not creating a sort of unwanted state, but definitely um, the time that was updating and releasing, it was slower than um, they try, try to access their collection in a very, you know, um, high volume request. So ultimately what we did, we implemented some sort of a, um, asynchronous kind of a, uh, approach. And the idea is that uh, what is great about synchronous programming, even for the collection at that level, when you have like uh, a lot of uh, IO operation, is that at that point, the thread is not waiting for the collection to be updated or released. So actually, they try this release for the work and do something else. So overall, maybe, actually maybe, for sure the performance did not improve, but the contention was much gone, which make the server, you know, lighter and uh, and able to uh, do more computation at the same time, right? Because now they have such a, such a heavy overhead and so many threads busy waiting for the, thread before in the queue to complete the work, if it makes sense, right? Yeah, so what you did is instead of updating and having to get a lock, you're just kind of emitting some sort of message like this user That's correct. Uh, joined and then this user left and then something else uh, owns 
this shared state and updates it. That's correct. Yes. And that's not blocking, as I said, because they're synchronous. So all the traders were happy just to send a message and do, and they go back to do something else. Right. So how come, um, you didn't try immutability in this case? Well, so because that's one of the cases where probably, um, redesigned application was taking an extra, you know, effort. That was definitely a good approach anyways. The way of like global state, unfortunately, like if you think about it, even a database is a global state, right? Because everybody can access the base, write the base update and so forth. However, when this kind of situation, uh, you know, you can use patterns such as, you know, the message passing is a good pattern um, where you can create this small linear computation that maintains the state internally, which is very quick to answer to request, and then slowly and synchronously also update the server, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's actually uh, was pretty much the approach that we did in this 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 case scenario. So in in this scenario, the problem to overcome is shared state, and uh, like an actor message based approach seems to be a really good fit. What about cases where like you have a lot of you have like a lot of data and you need to you know perform similar actions on it like uh the mandelbrot set so so there are two different kind of um well there are different kind of uh, data operation like like single structure multiple data and multiple structure multiple data in this there are so the difference between the two is that um as the name imply you process one operation uh, to all different kinds of the data, or you can process multiple operations to the data, right? In the case of Underbrot, you mentioned pretty much you apply a single extraction to multiple data. So um, probably have some sort of uh, complex number or, or so forth, and you you know try to generate this Underbrot and uh, render you know the, the image, and you can parallelize this um, this kind of application because you can compute a portion of the data in in parallel. So each thread own a portion of the data. And then, as I mentioned earlier, some sort of fork joint pattern. So you partition the data, and when the computation is done independently, rejoin the computation the result together. Right. So we have like two steps of the process, which is the fork, which is the partition and the work, and the join when everything completed you smash it together uh, to obtain the result. The, the partition is a, is the tricky part, but uh, uh, there are different kinds of approaches you can do in that level as well. Yeah, because you need to determine how parallel to go. So how do, how do you do that? The, the main issue is that you don't want to um, overwhelm the uh, the scheduler, the thread scheduler. So um, usually it's recommended to have a ratio like one thread per CPU, per logical CPU of the, the computer. However, there are some cases that, that you can have more, more thread than that. One example that came in mind actually is that when you try to walk a tree, okay? When you have like a big tree structure and you try to uh, walk the tree in parallel, well, you have to be careful to don't spawn a thread for each Subtree of the tree until you most likely spawn a thread almost for each node, right? Because then mm-hmm. if you have like a thousand, a thousand node, yeah, there are, you know, sometimes it, the vendor tell you, I don't worry, the scheduler going to take care of it. That's not completely true because then you introduce something called contest switching. And what's happened is that you have so many threads that run in parallel. And yes, most likely the scheduler tried to partition the work among this thread. But because now you overwhelm the, the, the scheduler, the scheduler tried to contest switch between thread, um, and they introduce extra overhead, right? There are, depending on operation system, but like in a Windows operation system, I think it's about 150, uh, sorry, 15 milliseconds. But you think about this also is a, an eternity when you have many, many thread running parallel, right? Uh, a solution is that the algorithm actually you specifically create a depth. So, which is uh, uh, the max thread, max thread that can run in parallel for that specific 
uh, trip, right? And even if like a, I say a quad core computer, maybe you can run up to eight thread is okay, maybe, but you don't want to go like a thousand thread, right? Um, it's still more. So I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine this in my mind. So I, I write my little functional definition that recursively goes down a tree and it uh, you know, say it's a binary tree, so it goes to each leaf. Right. And it's it's trying to find the minimum element, right? So right. you're saying, okay, we can make this parallel. So what we do is instead of going uh recursively checking each leaf, we like spin up a new task and have it get to each leaf. And then further to that, you're saying we want to, if we have four cores, then we only go four levels deep of recursion before we um, stop going in parallel, right? That's correct, yes. But but that's more than four cores, right? Because that's like a two to the four, if I have my math right. Yes, that's correct, which is a, um, a pretty high number and uh, really overwhelmed the scheduler. So in the head, you know, you run in this case when you know, I parallelize my code around four times slower. Well, that's because, you know, you overwhelm too much in scheduler. So I think in a, um, I have an example actually in the book about a similar approach, uh, a similar problem. And uh, I compare uh, the solution with or without uh, this extra, you know, check how many tries you can parallel with the depth. And really, uh, in a quad-core machine, was about uh, twice as faster even with less thread for the same, you know, um, uh, for the same reason that we uh, remove such a such a large payload and, and stress to the scheduler. So, is there a magic number, or we just know it's somewhere between the number of cores and two to the number of cores? Yeah. So uh, again, it's uh, this not like silver bullet. Um, it's all about measure and measure and measure and uh, figure out what the best number. However, uh, uh, like in this case of the tree, working the tree in parallel, probably like a good number would be like probably, uh, I want to say the, the number of the core um, time two, probably, I would say. Oh, okay. I mean, extra, extra overhead is fine, right? But um, uh, not too much. Yeah, it will still it will still be faster than the uh than the sequential approach unless unless you're way out there. Yeah. But uh Yeah, but as I said, there are cases when uh, if you're not careful actually the sequential core core run faster than the parallel one. And oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So you're about to know <laughs> to measure it and figure out actually if you gain speed and performance at the end, right? Because Oh, it's parallel. It's going to be faster. Move on. Well, and then your problem. Like an example, where we talk about the contention on the chat example, right? Yeah. So the the secret of concurrency, besides functional programming, is know what your what your uh, expected workloads are like, and then just test it. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So that that is uh, so that's like data parallelism. You have lots of data, and you perform the same thing on it. Um, like what about cases where, um, let's say I have to call two web services, get two pieces of information back, and then call you know call a third service with the results. When you call a web server or any sort of services, uh, we introduce a different kind of uh, parallelism. In this case, is a asynchronous parallelism when you have like um, I operation that are not CPU bound. Mm-hmm. So in this case, um, asynchronous operation is something that will complete later in the future. But the great thing about asynchronous programming that I really love is the idea that um, you push the computation somewhere else, right? So in the case of the web server you mentioned, you make a request to the server. But because it's asynchronous, now your computer, it doesn't need to uh, lock a resource, a resource such as a thread, waiting to... Uh, the response come back, but it can go to the back to the scheduler and be scheduled for to do some other work. And when the computation or when the, actually the response come back from the server, the scheduler can send a thread, which is not necessarily the thread that initiated the work, can be another thread, and then continue the computation. Right. And the great thing here is that uh, when you push the work to do to to 
to be performed somewhere else in the case of asynchronous programming. Because it's not CPU bound, you don't necessarily have to be constrained to have the number of thread that match the number of core to reduce no contention and high performance computation. But really it can mean even like uh, something that I call unbounded computation. Because even like in a, in a single core machine, you can reach true parallelism with asynchronous programming because again, it's not CPU bound. So somewhere else, somewhere else doesn't work, right? So there's no limit. If it's IO, you know, yeah. there's no reason to limit yourself in terms of the asynchronous operations you're waiting on. Yeah, that's why I really love asynchronous programming. And um, in, the, in the case you mentioned, even in this case, um, the idea of two parallel requests that going out to some two dependent web server, we have also this case like a small fork join uh, pattern as well, right? Because now we have two computation in parallel and then we merge the result that it's going to send back to the third web server. But now even like in a one core machine, these two requests can be true, truly run in parallel regardless. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen this uh, Haxel project? There's a, there's a .NET version of it. It, it came from uh, Facebook uh, originally. No, I'm not familiar. Yeah. It finds if it, this example that I had where you have two things that need to run asynchronously, but then a third that depends on the two of them. If you use like in Scala or Haskell, you were using like a do notation with like a monad. Um, or if you were in, in C sharp with like your, your link or whatever, um, the, the two first requests will end up, uh, like one will be depending upon the other when in fact there's no dependency, right? right. Like the, so, uh, this Haxel actually kind of, I think, I don't, I don't know how it works, but it triver- it kind of traverses the dependencies to say like these two actually don't need to be sequential. Uh, they can be run together. Um, I forget what they call it, like uh, implied concurrency or something. Like you don't have to tell it to that these are separate. It it, it walks the traversal. Oh, very cool. It, it seems very very similar, as you said, like the do notation and ask uh, like the something called continuation passing. Yeah, uh, and I think it's very similar to what you're telling. But I'm, I'm looking forward to read more about it. Uh, but the idea is that um, to compute something. And uh, instead to block the computation that maybe looks sequential and you block the flow. So, but you don't block the, let's say, uh, the execution. Like for instance, uh, in a, if you are like a, a desktop application, the UI won't freeze because even the code kind of waiting to complete that, but it's not only um, stopping the, the, the main thread execution because when the original computation complete, then continue it pass the result to the next step all without blocking the main track, right? Yeah, your your book has a lot of of um it makes use of continuation passing style in F sharp a lot for this pattern, right? Yes. To to link to link operations. Yeah, in, in a, definitely the reason is that it's not blocking. And I love to write no blocking code, right? Because that's when you actually reach uh, scalability, um, and uh, but even like um, C sharp or other programming languages, you can write code in the same you know um, in the same paradigm, right? And, and really, the idea is that you start the computation and then continue the work to the next step. Now, in in the book, actually, I explain how this can be implemented in C sharp, even if it was not designed with that in mind, and apply almost the do notation Haskell. Uh, in, in, in C-sharp. Like in F-sharp, there is actually something similar to the denotation in Haskell, which is specifically for asynchronous programming model, and uh, it's called uh, asynchronous workflow. And uh, mm-hmm. what it does is just uh, uh, syntactic sugar, a level of abstraction in top of continuation passing uh, style, because I like to write code that looks sequential, and but in reality, is not blocking underneath it. And the result is passed as a um, um, argument to the next function without blocking the main track. How how do these workflow workflows relate to like do notation or or for comprehensions? They're all kind of a monad. We have to talk about you know the M word, but uh, uh, <laughs> the idea that like uh, the do notation or the the, the modern Haskell 
uh, are more generic, like than in F sharp, mm -hmm. uh, for example, because F sharp there are more specialized yeah, to build your own. Like for instance, there are building continuation like the synchronous workflow or sequences and so or the query expression and so forth. And you can actually what I think is in somehow is more powerful, but you have to be careful, is actually you can implement your own, right? It's called computation expression. And uh but specifically for concurrent programming, uh even Haskell use something called the continuation model. And the continuation is pretty much the continuation passing. Uh, if use a continuation passing semantic, uh, the same as, you know, um, other programming languages such as um, F sharp, closure, and so forth. Yeah. So it ends up pretty nice. Like I was reading through the examples in the book. I think, yeah, the one difference from, from something like Haskell or, or Scala where you have, um, like F sharp doesn't have higher kind of types. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> so you can't, you can't, uh, you can't write something that that is like generic over all types of workflows. I I guess. That's correct. There are some workaround on that. However, it truly is not been designed like Haskell Scala that you know use this kind of a uh, this kind of type. And to, to generate, you know, for you the code, which is quite nice. Not gonna lie. It ends up getting close. Uh, like I thought, like you can, and, and even the, even like the, uh, link stuff that you have in C sharp, like it, it reads a lot similarly, yes. right? That you're like from this, from that. It, it looks the same under the, under the covers. I think it's a lot possibly uglier. Well, so as you said, like C sharp, for example, definitely is not, uh, a functional programming languages. Well, they introduce more and more functional feature in language. But in the case of the um, link, which is pretty much monad, they just call it a different name. Uh, but the great thing about it is that it's a pattern based. So the compiler is able to detect the pattern and apply um, some sort of monad loads, right? So you can write code in a different way. So actually in the book explain how you can write your own link style approach for task. So you can run, you know, thread, using like sort of do, do notation and writing the code in that way, actually the compiler able to understand what we try to do. And you can write code, you know, using a link expression, which is very close to the do notation. So how does it do that? Does it look for certain methods? Yes, that's correct. So there are, uh, it's called in C-Sharp, so select many, which is uh, usually called in other programming languages, bind or the do notation or so forth, right? But yes, yeah, so pretty much you override the select menu for the type that you want to apply this programming style. And that's it. It just magically the compiler understand the pattern and is able to, to, um, implement it. Uh, is, uh, in the, like built in is for sequences for enumerable, but you can buy, you can create, you know, uh, monad like kind of approach for task. Just write a select menu for the task type. Very cool. Now that we're uh, deep into the functional programming terminology, I wanted to ask you about, I saw you did some talk where you made your own functional reactive programming library in F-sharp. Yes. It started as a proof of concept for a project that was working on it. And uh, actually, it turned out that it being implemented and expanded and then push production for the company. But, uh, um, but so the idea is really apply the um, functional programming um, to some sort of uh, representation, visualization in this case, when I I, I, I talk about it. Um, so the idea is that uh, it's like object or uh, can change over time, like, and there really is some sort of very heavy interleaving between uh, the computation of the object that can change. And functional programming just allowed you, first of all, uh, provide you a very nice uh, DSL, some sort of domain-specific language, to implement this uh, uh, animation in a very declarative, fluent way, and um, and again, quite nice. And I think, uh, like, I'm not totally clear on the exact what what exactly makes something FRP, but I feel like it's a concept that's that's uh, becoming popular. Like, uh, I know there's like Elm, and I think Redux maybe is like FRP. Like, I, I'm not sure. Yes, Elm, Elm probably is the closest one. Definitely, yes. Uh, there is some sort of concession with reactive programming and functional programming. And the unfortunate is that they share 
a lot of ideas together. And even at the programming, uh, share a lot of functional primitive. Uh, but there are two different things, right? So what, what is FRP then? So, uh, so first, actually, um, let's start with active programming. That is really an umbrella. Uh, in the industry, mm-hmm. uh, the term reactive programming also tried to cover, you know, um, functional programming and so forth. But so reactive programming is the idea that, uh, uh, everything is an event. So you can process event as a stream. It's a, sort of like a collection. But in this case, instead of be a collection, it's like a stream on event. And you think mm-hmm. about event are data. Okay. So pretty much reactive programming, you just get this data and um, real time process these data um, and, you know, manipulate it to do something. You think about, you know, IoT in this case, like uh, these days are very uh, trendy. Um, there are a lot of uh, events out there that need to be processed almost real time. So more and more reactive programming become like, you know, uh, this buzzword. But um, mm-hmm. really, reactive programming is about processes asynchronous, asynchronously, you know, blocking a stream on event. And the other side, uh, instead, um, uh, functional reactive programming is about um, that, um, let's say, uh, I always say event, but event, uh, say event, event they change over time, but the, the main difference between the two is the, the time. Because in functional programming, the time is continuous, a uh, little like change monotonically. And, and, and uh, instead, the active programming is not really, you can reproduce the event, for instance, that ran a year ago and, and reprocesses. Instead, in functional programming, this is just is about uh, uh, time is continuous. And like a, a a spreadsheet, I've heard the example before of a spreadsheet. Is Are you familiar with this example? Yes. So that's actually very much um, reactive programming because the idea that uh, like uh, we have a cell that is bind to a formula that uh, um, is related to do different cell, whenever you change the value of the one of the two cell, also the value of the cell change, right? And this cell pretty much react to the event that one value change another cell. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I think it's a good model for for understanding reactive because, yeah, everything updates. Uh, in your book, you had this um, you had this acronym ACD about. I, I guess it was a guideline for designing uh, concurrent systems. So ACD stands for. Um, Asynchronous caching and distributed. So when we talk about asynchronous programming, everybody must think about synchronous to, you know, the classic begin end pattern or the callback pattern. But first of all, waves, uh, asynchronous is based on something that we know we're going to complete later in the future. So asynchronous can be either like, uh, I just said, like a begin end kind of pattern in code, but also like a design pattern. Such as like uh, the classic example that Amazon, right? When you submit an order uh, um, in Amazon, you don't get you know um, right away the confirmation, but you get mm-hmm. like to a page that said your order is going to be processed. You receive in the mail, you know, and, and so forth. And that's actually a synchronous, right? Uh, so and definitely uh, that's like a, an architecture kind of uh, idea to be asynchronous. And the ACD is the, really the secret to write scalable system that is able to cope many, many requests that come over time um, because uh, applying you know, this three uh, main rule, which is uh, uh, asynchronous, which is not blocking, which is uh, uh, sometimes actually I still get the question um, that server are naturally in parallel. Scale, you know, many requests in parallel. Why should you do asynchronous programming, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, it's very important to write a synchronous program in the server because um, now you can handle multiple requests at the same time because the server most likely is going to call maybe database. They're going to do some sort of operation uh, that also not just CPU back. Okay. In that case, instead of the thread that is blocked and waiting to the computation to complete, 
instead of go back to the scheduler, they're able then to handle other requests coming. Otherwise, if he's waiting, you have multiple requests coming in and then the scheduler that spawns spawn multiple threads is very costly, very resource intensive. And then when you pass actually the maximum number of thread that the scheduler can handle, it starts queue up the request. And at that point, if the queue can be larger, you get a timeout, which is now definitely what you want to do. So asynchronous programming is very important also for server side. If, I, if I'm thinking like a, a web service, um, if it gets a request like, hey, create this user, uh, like one thing you could do is instead of returning like a 200, like, okay, we created it, is you you just, you return like a, I don't know what it is, a 202 or something. You're like, yeah, we, we got the message. Uh, and then you kind of put that somewhere, right? You put it on a queue. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, that's correct. But the queue is handled by the scheduler, right? So you don't really have to do anything. Unless uh, unless you're building your own pattern, like we talk about the Amazon, that's just some sort of a queue or messages uh, to some sort of message pass and so forth, and queue that to be processed you know, uh, over time. Yeah, or like if you go to like a cafe and you order your food and they give you one of those numbers, right? You right. don't just stand there and wait right. for your food. They're like... Right. Think about if you order something from Amazon and if it was buying until you had to wait in front of the browser until the UPS guy showed up to the door, right? <laughs> and then you close the browser, maybe you lost your order. I don't know, right? So that, <laughs> that's something that, um, yeah, that's pretty much the same idea, right? I hope their delivery time gets that good. I can just yeah. sit there and wait, refresh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's that's asynchrony. What about what about caching? How does that apply? So caching is um, uh, an approach that uh, um, aims to avoid, you know, to recompute the same uh, the same work multiple times. Uh, for example, you can uh, call, uh, you know, from a database um, some sort of data that is now changed over time. So why you have to call the database again and, you know, um, running computation takes some time, you know, and so forth. Instead, it can, it can be cached um, locally so you avoid a round trip to the database, which is cost and resource intensive and is very fast, right? We're talking about memory access rather than I.O. Uh, time access, which is, you know, quite a large difference. We're talking about, um, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. let's say 500 milliseconds for database I.O. or maybe less, but can be way, way less, like, like very few milliseconds for uh, local access in the less. And something could be derived too, where it's not just a simple database read, but you're like... Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So in the case of the actor model, the agent we talked like initially, you can tell the agent to persist in the database, but also uh, have a local copy, local state, inside the agent. And what is great is that the agent is like safe, so nobody can access the state inside the agent, inside the agent itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so you avoid those sort of the thread exert, uh, such as race condition, deadlock, so forth. But in this case, the access is very fast because you send a message to the agent to get some piece of data, but the agent say, oh, wait, I have this data here locally, so I don't have to go to the database, right? So, like, I guess it sounds like on the right side, uh, like on the right side, you want to be asynchronous, and then on the read side, you, you're trying to cache things. Yes, that's correct. You can scale better because no matter how much, you know, read side scales, then you're still serving from the cache. And however much right side scales, it's just queuing up somewhere. I mean, I guess it can't queue infinitely, but it gives you a, a large buffer. Yes. And the access is very fast. So what about uh, distribution? That was your last one. Yeah, that's the idea of partition. Actually, they work across a um, uh, different machine, right? So in this case, uh, then we're like multiple computer with more server. Um, you can partition the work among the server. And uh, the idea, though, is uh, to design the system that is stateless as possible because Without state, well, the server doesn't, you know, um, doesn't have state, so the, the, the work can be distributed without running any sort of uh, problem. Because then we introduce some sort of other 
uh, implementation we talked earlier, like global state, you have to be careful to be accessed and also maybe is yes, a source intensive. But in this case, uh, distribution, distributed work is, uh, you get the most benefit when you implement it in a stateless manner. And then, um, if you have state, then you can you partition somehow? Is this kind of like sharding or? Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, the idea that you can distribute the work like uh, for instance, yeah, like most like a, a load balancer between the server. And uh, whenever requests come in, the load balancer is simple, like in a uh, run robin fashion between the server. And um, so the, depend the application you're building can be like a request that is independent, or you can also distribute um, uh, the work with the request among server. So, like for instance, MapReduce pattern, you can have the ser- multiple server that uh, belong to the map part of, uh, step of the process. So they can parallelize the work uh, and then pass the computation to the other server part, the pipeline, and so forth. And it depends on what we we'll try to achieve. But the idea of stateless, actually, now you mentioned that, uh, I was thinking, um, if you like an application that uh, you have sort of session, well, the problem with the section that, you know, you have to be careful because maybe you hit one server the first time, the computation, and then you hit a server the second time that doesn't have that session, right? So now you have to distribute the work uh, between the server, but also they have like this bottleneck or this global uh, state that you can share. And um, so that's where, you know, you can use database, as we said, early this and so forth, where you can partition also the session, but the idea that you try to build um, an architect application that is stateless as possible. Yeah. Yeah, especially for for like a web server, I think the stateless. Yeah, that's right. You know, can make a lot of sense. So we're running out of time, but uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to mention how much I liked your book. It's pretty fun. Interestingly, like it's a book about concurrency, and I think it goes through like several different um, ways to approach concurrency in several different libraries. But uh, the thing I really liked is, uh, well, besides the the secret functional programming book, is like all your uh, little um, asides where you are kind of teaching people things. So earlier you mentioned uh, CPU speed. I thought it was pretty fun in the book. You're like you actually calculated like back of the envelope. Like what the limit on, on on CPU speed could be based on the speed of light. <laughs> I thought that was clever. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks. Yes, yes. I'm doing um recently. I'm studying a bit about uh, um, quantum computing. Ah. And uh, and uh, so I actually have a presentation coming shortly about quantum computing. And uh, more and more, I you know get familiar with the concept, and more and more, I really enjoy you know the, the, this technology and. Uh, I think it's the future because, yeah, we really reach the physical limit of the sites because uh, I dare that we never have like a transistor that is big like an atom. At that point, we have to go to the quantum computing direction, right? And uh, so it's very, very fascinating. This completely different idea how we program and how we implement hardware. But, you know, many years ago, we have... uh, uh, machine that were based on the vacuum, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, then so far, you know, now today we're transistors. So I think this is a, a natural evolution of quantum computing. Yeah, I, I I don't understand it at all, but I understand it can speed up certain certain specific type of things. All right, well, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right, well, thank you for having me again. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> all right, that was our interview with Ricardo Terrell. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, If you stayed this long, as I mentioned at the beginning, we have a couple copies of the ebook to give away. Um, If you would like the ebook, look on Twitter where I will start a thread. You can reply to it um, if you're interested and and I'll do a draw. Uh, If you're not on Twitter, also just go to the page for this uh, episode on my website for CoRecursive and leave a comment there. Um, and you'll be entered in the draw as well. Once again, if you like the show, please uh, spread the word about it. Feel free 
to leave reviews on iTunes or tell people on Twitter. Thank you to everybody who mentioned the show on Twitter recently. Request 8, Bork Dude, Robert, Balicki, Ashley, or Terry. Sorry if I'm murdering people's names here. Uh, and Signified Technologies, who featured my first episode in their Sunday Reads list. Also, thank you to Charity Majors, who said, uh, the guest from last time, who said that this was definitely one of her favorite podcasts ever on Twitter. Um, kind of holding up for number one. But uh, thank you very much, Charity. All right. We will talk to you next time.